car and pick up your card today. Hey there. Happy Wednesday, everyone out there. My name is Tracy Fuller, and this is The Arts Report for Wednesday, March 25th, 2009. As per usual, I have a jam-packed show lined up for you today with three interviews and a theater review. I hope you've got your seat belt, seat belts fashion, fa fastened, excuse me, because it's going to be a wild ride. As I'm sure many of you know, the Junos is coming to Vancouver this weekend. And uh, to kick it off, I have interviews with two different Juno nominees today. I'm going to start off the show with an interview with Tim Corliss, who's uh, a classical composer whose song has been nominated for one of the best albums of the year. I will also be speaking to Ndidi Onkulu later in the show. I will have a an interview with filmmaker Astra Taylor, and I will have a theater review of The Idiot's Karamazov by Paul Riviere. So let's get right to it, shall we? Um, I'm going to bring up some sound here. Um, Well, I don't know if you can hear that, but hopefully this the music will be coming in. Ah, there we are. The music you are listening to is by Timothy Corliss. It's been called atmospherically striking and bursting with vigor and truth. It received a five-star review from CBC's Rick Phillips, and this particular piece which is called Notes Towards a Poem That Can Never Be Written, is one of, the one of the five nominated for Classical Composition of the Year for the 2009 Juno Awards. Before it became a Juno-nominated choral and instrumental piece, Notes, Notes Towards a Poem That Can Never Be Written was a long, multi-segmented work by Margaret Atwood. It was, the first, it was first published by Salamander Press in 1981. Atwood's poem serves to show us the grim, ugly face of sad circumstance and stark reality. Here's an excerpt. The facts of this world seen clearly are seen through tears. Why tell me then there is something wrong with my eyes? To see clearly and without flinching, without turning away, this is agony, the eyes taped open two inches from the sun. That's some pretty poignant prose going on. And the full work itself has a number of goosebump moments like that. The female body is depicted as a battlefield of violence upon which men's brutal rituals are enacted as they vie for supremacy. The poem inspired Corliss's piece, which was commissioned by the De Capo Chamber, Chamber Choir and was funded with the assistance of the Ontario Arts Council. Timothy Corliss himself began his career as a music director at Sterling Avenue Mennonite Church, where he enjoyed writing for the church and community choirs in, Waterloo, in the Waterloo region. His music has since received performances and broadcasts across North America by some of Canada's, by some of Canada's most prominent performers. Corliss holds a Master's of Arts in Social and Political Thought from York University and a Master's of Music from U of T. 
These days, he is a UBC composition doctoral student, and later this spring he will be launching the new Vancouver Peace Choir with assistant conductor Kathleen Allen. Timothy Corliss did come into the CITR studios earlier today to speak with me, and here is our conversation with background music by Timothy Corliss. It is his own piece, which is called Notes Towards a Poem That Can Never Be Written. I hope you enjoy this. I should start by thanking you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, in the liner notes of your CD, it says that there's one line from Margaret Atwood's poem that illustrates the central inspiration for notes towards a poem that can never be written, and for the CD as a whole. Can you explain how you came upon that line and how this music came out of it? Mm-hmm. Well, the... Uh just to begin with, I had to say that the poem itself, uh, when I first encountered it, mm-hmm. uh, was not something I would think of setting to music at all. No. Uh, it's an f- extremely stark poem, and um, in many ways, when I first read it, it left me with a very uncomfortable sort of feeling, but I was fascinated by this discomfort. Yeah. And so what I decided to do was explore that feeling of discomfort. You mm-hmm. know, what, why does it make me so uncomfortable? What, what is it about it? You know, instead of just... Uh, putting it away in a file, you know, I, I said, okay, well, I'm going to sit with this and, uh, and, and try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that line about uh, tears... Um, mm-hmm. The facts that this world seen, seen clearly are seen through seen, tears. Yeah. That, that line, uh, for some reason, just started to, to resonate more and more and eventually became sort of central to the concept for the piece. One of the things that's nice about a concert is that you can um, use the spatial element. And, you know, on a recording, that's really not there. You have two speakers, sometimes five, and so the spatial element isn't as prominent. And so when I was writing the piece, um, something that came to mind was the sense of the concert hall as something that um, often, when you go to a concert, you have this comfortable distance from the art. Mm-hmm. In other words, you go, you sit in, in, the, in a chair, and you watch what's on stage and it's it's at a distance from you and it's safe because of that right and i think one of the things that made me uncomfortable about margaret atwood's poem is the the, the metaphors of space very much draw draw you into it mm-hmm. and so you become uh sort of surrounded by what she's saying mm-hmm. uh, and it becomes diff- difficult to objectify your position in other words mm-hmm. you're not uh you don't have perspective from it it sort of uh, makes it way its way into you mm-hmm. And this is, uh, so that line, you know, the facts of this, of this world seen through tears, um, it sort of plays with that idea of, of what's objective and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe there's a deeper kind of uh, truth, mm-hmm. you know, that, that comes from subjectivity. Definitely. Yeah. I, we have to describe what the f- performance looked like right. coming out of this. Um, when it was first performed, it has none of this audience performer distance that we were just talking about there instead you surrounded the audience with yep. three choirs the a solo cellist was in the center i believe that's or, right and then there was a a wandering 
poet who is speaking the words as well as a, a solo soprano who That's is right. singing. Yeah. And all of those elements are, I mean, the first performance uh, was in a church mm -hmm. uh, because choirs sound great in churches. And I should, I should also just back up slightly and, and give a, a small... Um, bit of background on, on how the piece came about in terms of its logistics. Uh, it was a commission mm -hmm. by a choir in Waterloo, Ontario, and the director of the choir's name is Leonard Enns. Mm. And the commission uh, initially had some parameters around it. One was, you know, it needed to be for a choir, and secondly, uh, there was a soloist, a cello soloist, mm -hmm. uh, who was a friend of mine, um, who uh, was slaughtered for that concert. And so I had the, you know, the resources of solo cello and, uh, and choir. The other thing is that I had a theme for the concert, hmm. uh, which was called solilo Soliloquy, mm -hmm. and uh, the basic idea was the lone voice in the crowd. Hmm. Uh, in other words, what are the voices that are marginalized that we don't often hear? Uh, what, what are the voices that, um, that often speak but get lost in the white noise of information? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. Right. So that, given that uh, mandate, um, what I did was um, I split the choir into three different sub-choirs, sort of mm -hmm. echo choirs. Mm -hmm. So there was a choir at the front of the church and then two choirs at either side. Mm -hmm. And then the soprano solo was at the back. The cellist was right up front. And then way, way in the back of the chancel, there was uh, the percussion, which mm -hmm. was, we created this very atmospheric sort of gloomy uh, percussion in the background. And then, and then the narrator, who spoke the text, um, so the text is not sung, it's mm -hmm. spoken. Um, the narrator wanders around the room Hmm. throughout the performance. And this, this setting sort of uh, initially makes people a little bit uncomfortable in the way that the poem does, hmm. because it brings people into a subjective place in, in the space so that they become immersed in the ideas. Uh, and it becomes difficult to, uh, to keep a distance from them. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. I imagine that people might be a little uneasy having people wandering around and not knowing where sounds are coming from at different points in time. And also just a sheer massive sound, like uh, you have, you know, a choir surrounding you in a very resonant acoustic space, mm -hmm. and this um, very loud soprano mm -hmm. at the back of the room, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of noise. How many people were in the choir as opposed to the people who would be sitting in the audience? Uh, the choir is a chamber choir, mm -hmm. so they, at the premiere performance, pulled off quite, quite an acrobatic feat to simulate the effect of three choirs mm. there's about 22 in their choir so it's quite an accomplished group yeah uh, so each each you know group of like the two echo choirs were consisted of eight or nine mm -hmm. you know and and uh so it, you know it was small group mm -hmm. singing in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh, but still had the same impact of, of three different you know choral ideas mm -hmm. when we did the recording uh, the challenge, of course, was to try to communicate the same kind of spatial information on two speakers. Right, because when you're listening to the radio, like we are now, for example, you're only getting your uh, stereo two channels, whereas in the concert there was at least five different sources of sound. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the way we approached that um, was to... Well, I guess I'll give away some of the magic here, <laughs> um, but, but it is interesting. It was a very, very technical CD to create. We recorded each choir separately. Mm -hmm. In other words, the so that the two echo choirs and the main choir were separate tracks uh, on mm -hmm. the recording process. And so each choir I I that you hear uh, in, in that performance on the CD represents one whole decapital chamber choir. Wow! And so when you when you put it all together, and the other interesting thing is that we had several recording sessions where there were 
you know, different voices at each session. And so mm-hmm. it actually does very effectively simulate, you know, a 60-person choir. Mm-hmm. Um, but we decided to go that way just because um, we felt that the recording medium itself should become part of the artistic process. Definitely. And especially in this day and age, you know, that's such a common thing in pop music. Mm-hmm. And the classical music world tends to shy away from overproducing. And uh, artists like Roe McCluskey, our recording engineer, um, sat down with us and, and said that he would be excited about uh, doing something that used the studio as part of the art form. Right. Uh, and so, so we said, yeah, let's do that. So the, the resulting CD came out and... Uh, were you surprised when you got the nod for the Juno nomination? Where were you when you heard? The Juno, yeah. Well, the Juno's are on Saturday, um, and, and yes, uh, obviously we were surprised when we found out. I and mean, we submitted the CD to all kinds of things, you mm. know, sent it to radio stations, newspapers to get reviews and so on, and, and one of the things we put it in for was the Juno's. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I mean, we were in no way expecting any response, <laughs> uh, largely because... The competition has a lot more at its dis- you know disposal in terms of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, our CD, uh, well, is, let's face it, it's an obscure label and an obscure composer, uh, and and you know the, the performers are exceptionally good, um, which we're very lucky uh, about. But but the the fact is that we're we're up against CDs that have a budget of fifty thousand dollars, and so. You know, for our group to to have a nomination was sort of uh, mm. extremely bizarre. Where were you when you when you found out? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I uh, oh got up one morning and I had um, uh, I, they didn't contact me actually. Uh, the, my I, I clicked on my MySpace page and noticed that the the count was was just astronomical that morning, <laughs> and uh, and realized oh there must be something up. So I mm-hmm. I went and checked the newspaper. Well, yeah. hmm. well, I mean, uh, for me listening to it, it sounds completely different from most of what I would expect to hear classical music. And I, I admit I don't listen to a lot of classical music these days. I've mm-hmm. played a lot in the past. Um, but for me, one of the things that really strikes me is, and you were talking about this a little earlier, is the, the use of both a narrator or a poet, someone who's just speaking... Um, words versus a choir and and a soloist and having the cello voice in there as well. These different people contributing to the overall sound. I was really it made me think about how music informs the way we feel about things and the, our relationship to ideas versus the way text does or the way a poet poem does. And specifically, the the title of Margaret Atwood's poem is "Notes Towards a Poem That Can Never Be Written." So the idea that, A, it is written, and we are reading it, and we are implicated within it, but then to be implicated in, to be sort of transformed into a whole other type of communication, that really strikes me, and it sounds amazing, and uh, really, mm, it grabs you, your soul. The, um, I think what you're resting on is a topic that I struggled with quite a bit in in the process of writing the piece. And eventually, that's why I decided to have the poem read by a narrator. Mm. Uh, who, the, by, by the way, the narrator is Bruce Dow, who is an actor at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were very lucky to uh, to have him read it. He did an excellent job. The um, 
like when you read a text, it I think accesses a certain area of your brain、mm -hmm. that is quite different from the way you experience melodic sounds.、Mm -hmm. You know, like abstract textures in in sound.、Um, Or, or、uh, emotive content in sound seems to have a, a, a different rest in a different place from from textual、mm -hmm. content, and so there's always I found a challenge to make the transition between the use of of fluid musical material and then it, it keep that continuity,、uh, and then the narrator speaks.、Mm -hmm. uh, that that's a real challenge. The other thing that's interesting、uh, in that respect is is the sort of、um, two traditions that are. Merging,、um, like let's face it, choirs are part of a tradition, a choral tradition, and that tradition is very much rooted in the church.、Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you go to a secular choral concert, your basic assumption is that they're going to be singing songs that are church songs,、mm -hmm. uh, unless it's specifically, you know, an intentionally secular concert, right? Because there's so much choral music that's from that tradition. And so I thought, well, the, the poem is definitely not a religious poem at all. It's、uh, Very、uh, strikingly critical of, of institution, and so that again was a challenge to how do you how do you live within this tradition that's you know a choir thing, and at the same time、uh, use this poem、uh, that's, that's deliberately criticizing that kind of institutional framework. And the way the way I decided to approach that was to use a subtext,、mm -hmm. um, and the subtext within the、uh, that, that goes throughout the piece is. Uh, from the Requiem, Dona Nobis Pacem.、Right? Really. So, so it's、uh, Lord Grandis Rest、mm -hmm. uh, or Grandis Peace. And initially, when the when the, the music starts, there's a quite a long introduction.、Mm -hmm. So the the text doesn't actually begin its narration until three or four minutes into the into the work. It was twenty、mm、six -hmm. minutes. So when I first listened to it, the text caught me off guard because、right. it was、yeah. the last thing that I expected、That's、to、right. hear、so、coming out of the speaker. That's right. It's a sort of、speakers. Star Trek moment. Like, yeah. Whoa! You know, there's text. <laughs> And the reason I did that is because、um, I felt the need to establish、uh, meditative space.、Mm -hmm. um, and for, when I write music for choirs, I'm always thinking along those lines. You know, it's like how how can the choir create this、um, place within the listener that that is calm and、uh, ready to receive that kind of information.、Mm -hmm. And so the, what I did was、um, the choir sings the word pachem、mm -hmm. over and over and over throughout the piece and. And so that word takes on different transformations as、mm -hmm. it goes. And the phrase "Don't know these pachem," I play with it quite a bit.、Um, mm -hmm. So initially, the word pachem, all they're saying is pachem, just very slowly. But the the language that they're they're singing,、uh, in terms of the musical content, is is quite atonal,、mm -hmm. uh, but in a gentle way.、Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's very peaceful, you know, and it, and it, it paints the idea of peace, but in a uncomfortable, tense. Sense. Yeah, like, there's I, yeah. there's something just off. It sounds beautiful, but it's there's something. It's like、uh, someone rubbing a cat the wrong way. It's、right. it's just a little bit. It's soft、yeah. and lovely.、Yeah. But so it's very, it's very peaceful, very meditative, but but very unresolved.、Mm -hmm. very, it, it paints a kind of negative piece, you know, like the kind of piece like the Cold War,、mm -hmm. or or what, what we have right now, where there, you have a you know a balance of power,、uh, but it's you know the the. Uh, the, the peace, if there is any, is created by a sense of, of predominant threat,、mm -hmm. you know, or or、um, a use of fear,、mm -hmm. you know, to to create that stability. So that that initial statement of a peaceful but yet、um, tense、uh, environment, and then out of that comes 
the initial the initial poem. Right. Um, and so the the whole thing when the narrative begins, this, this is, is the place you would rather not know about. This is the place that will inhabit you. This is the place you cannot imagine. This is the place that will finally defeat you, where the word why shrivels and empties itself. And empties itself. This, this is, is famine. famine. So right off the bat, it's it's stark imagery. It's um, you know the the image of famine is very graphic mm-hmm. and, and negative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it, uh, all the visual images that come to mind um, are, are startling. You mm-hmm. know, when you hear that word. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that, you know, uh, the text should s- first sit on this, this bed of music mm-hmm. uh, before those ideas uh, come into play so that the listener can, can kind of trust me a mm-hmm. little bit and say, well, I'm not, I'm not just going to throw this at you. I'm going to, you know, uh, give you room to, to experience it slowly. Right. And then I guess I'll just say a little bit more about the compositional process. Yeah. Um, as the, uh, the piece progresses, the, the image of peace, the Dornovis Pacham phrase, takes on many different um, meanings. So there's the, the, the whole middle movement of the piece uh, where there's a huge climax. Mm-hmm. Um, building up to that climax, the singers are actually just singing ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no text at all. And so it creates a kind of disembodied instrumental choral sense. And in that section, there's this repeated, um, uh, jagged, almost jagged motive. Um, it's ba dee it's a, sort of a, a, and then also the other way around, sort of creates this, it's like a almost Middle Eastern uh, augmented second mm-hmm. sounding thing. And then that that's all over the place. Uh, and that's actually how the piece begins as well. Mm-hmm. And then at the at the big moment, <laughs> uh-huh. it builds up to this, uh, the choirs are, just come back to the text, Dona Nobis Pachim, and the soprano s- soars above them uh, with a transformation of this, uh, mm-hmm. this motive. Mm-hmm. Right? And then the cello echoes it, and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that's that's conceptual and symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, that like the the poem very much um, uses feminine imagery mm-hmm. uh, in a in a strong way. Um, I'll just read a little bit of this. Yeah. Like the the um, the section of the poem where she talks about you know I, I think maybe a, a junkie I don't know but mm-hmm. it's, it's the woman the woman lies on the wet cement floor under the unending light needle marks on her arms put there to kill the brain and wonders why she is dying she is dying because she said she is dying for the sake of the world it is her body silent and fingerless writing this poem mm-hmm. now when people when people hear that or, or read it in isolation it's it's so stark that, that usually the def- defense mechanisms come out. You know, mm-hmm. like people crack jokes about it, or they or they just dismiss it, mm-hmm. or you know, like it's like, oh, Margaret Atwood, she's such a ch- such a grump. You know, like they turn yeah, off and exactly. they don't want to engage the idea because the idea is frightening. very startling. Um, but I felt that 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 was that feminine imagery was important, um, mm-hmm. and so to me, the soprano soloist in the piece uh, represents that uh, that mm-hmm. female voice, and. Um, plays a very key role mm-hmm. uh, and at times she's weeping uh, and then comes out of the texture uh, in a very powerful way mm-hmm. you know and, and when she's weeping she's within the texture surrounded by percussion mm-hmm. uh, very aggressive sounds mm-hmm. and then when she reached that key moment of, of transformation her voice soars above everything uh, and this motive that I 
saying a minute ago, um, comes back, but transformed mm-hmm. um, in a way that's predominant. Um, and in, in my mind, really points us towards what the poem brings us to at the end, which, given the, the incredible starkness of it, um, I find a shocking ending. Um, elsewhere, this poem must be written as if you are already dead, as if nothing more can be done or said to save you. Elsewhere, you must write this poem because there's nothing more to do. Mm-hmm. So it's profoundly hopeful, really, uh, yet still resting within this dark place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it compels us uh, to engage art in a way that's meaningful, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't commodify it, mm-hmm. you know, that, that treats it as something which uh, is an important uh, transformative and inspirational part of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the idea that we are already involved in the in the poem that um, Margaret Atwood sort of gives you the sense as a reader that you have been there and you have been involved in this in the production of this poem before it even began, and that you must be involved in its reproduction in the future. And that sort of strikes me as the same as uh, as an audience member perhaps listening in the midst of these choirs surrounding them, you are a part of the entire experience yeah. of it yeah. becoming and ending and being spoken of in the future. That might be a good way to um, actually close. I have, um, like, wrote about that very thing in the program notes. Really? <laughs> and, um, I think, uh, yeah, I might, I might just, um, just reference that. Yeah. Um, it says, one line in this poem illustrates the central inspira- inspiration for the composition. The facts of this world, seen clearly, are seen through tears. And then I, I, I say, when I read this poem as a composer, I hear it speaking about the numbing effect of privilege in an age where we are bombarded with information. As artists, we have the freedom to speak about the injustices that surround us, but are in many ways silenced by the white noise of information. We become overwhelmed by facts and, are often, and we often make the mistake of granting such facts an objectivity or distance from our senses. Atwood raises the question of whether this distance, emotional or otherwise, from information provides clarity. Perhaps there's a mode of perception that is subjective, emotional, or entangled that offers a deeper kind of clarity. Hmm. So the point basically just being that, um, yes, there is, you know, suffering and injustice mm-hmm. uh, and and in this padded cell that we call the first world uh, we rarely engage it mm. um, and, and there are obviously notable exceptions to that but uh, our lives are, are very um, yeah very separate from mm-hmm. from what's happening in many other parts of the world and I think we're given a lot of privilege to be able to turn off and to be able to disengage if we choose to that's right and the point I think of this piece of piece of art is um, I mean, not to oversimplify it, but um, for me as a composer, I think it it, it helped me to engage um, what I describe as a simultaneous sense of grief and hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the grief, I think, comes from realizing that I live in a society that has in many ways lost touch with its roots. I think at, at one point in Canada, we could believe that we lived uh, in, in a society that existed for the common good. Mm. and. It feels like to me in recent times that uh, that has made a shift to a model that serves the needs of the ultra-privileged, uh, mm-hmm. often at the expense of those who have no stake in it and at the expense of the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that gives me a sense of grief, but the hope at the same time is that I don't feel debilitated by it. Mm-hmm. I feel that um, art can reach people. It's not lost in the white noise of information. No. 
Uh, and so uh, makes me hopeful in, in what I'm doing and, and uh, in the collaborations that I experience through that process. Definitely. Well, Timothy, thank you so much for coming into the studio. You're most welcome. Elsewhere, this poem must be written as if you are already dead, as if nothing more can be done or said to save you. Elsewhere, you must write this poem because there is nothing more to do. was my conversation with Juno-nominated composer Timothy Corliss. His work, Notes Towards a Poem That Can Never Be Written, has been nominated in the category of Classical Composition of the Year. Timothy came to the CITR studio earlier today, and his most immediate concert is on March 31st in the Chapel of the Epiphany at Vancouver's School of Theology. It's a free concert and lecture on peacemaking in the aftermath of the, quote, War on Terror, featuring works by Bach, Elgar, and by Timothy Corliss. Then on Friday, April 24th, and on Sunday, the 26th, the Vancouver Peace Choir, which is Timothy's new choir, will present the Western Canadian premiere of In Paradisium, which Corliss wrote for choir, saxophone, and piano. And that's happening at the Gilmore Park United Church in Richmond on the Friday. And then the Sunday performance is again at the Epiphany Chapel at the Vancouver School of Theology on UBC campus. A big thanks to Timothy Corliss. Music Waste 2009 is now accepting submissions. This year's festival runs June 10th to 13th. This summer, Music Waste will be celebrating 15 years of independence. As the other local independent music festivals, large and small, have come and gone, Music Waste will once again highlight Vancouver's most interesting and innovative music. A testament to the strength of this musical community and the wealth of talent, Music Waste is Vancouver's independent music festival. Submission deadline, April 15th. Please email your submissions to submissions at musicwaste.ca and or for more information, contact Cameron Reed by email at cameron at musicwaste.ca or visit the website at www.musicwaste.ca. Hey there, welcome back to the Arts Report. 
My name is Tracy Fuller, and uh, it's about mm, 20, almost 20 to 6. Um, Astra Taylor is a writer and documentary filmmaker. She was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Toba, but raised in Athens, Georgia, and her first solo film was called Zizek, a feature documentary about the world's most famous philosopher. It premiered at the 2005 Toronto International Film Festival, and now Astra's second film is coming to UBC. The film Examined Life pulls philosophy out of the academy, out of academic journals and classrooms, and puts it onto the streets. And here's a little bit of what that sounds like. It takes tremendous discipline, takes a minute, tremendous courage to think for yourself, to examine yourself. That Socratic imperative of examining yourself requires courage. You know, William Butler Yeats used to say, it takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. Uh, in Examined Life, Astra Taylor accompanies eight of the world's most influential thinkers on a series of unique excursions through places and space. Yesterday, after a couple of misfires on my part, I finally got a hold of Astra Taylor at her apartment in New York City. And here's what our conversation sounded like. Hello? Hi, is this Astra? It is. It's Tracy Fuller calling from Vancouver. Hey, I was How's, just wondering. How's it going? Good, I'm doing very well. Excellent. I'm sitting here with my brand new rescued mutt. Mutt? Up this afternoon, so I'm quite excited. Oh, <laughs> what kind of dog is it? He's a total mutt. He's like obviously got some chihuahua, which is ridiculous because I'm a giant person, you know. Oh, no. He's this little... Uh, Kind of looks like a shrunken Doberman Pinscher or something like that. And he's just, he's ridiculous looking. I don't know why we picked him, but he's very sweet. <laughs> oh, well, it's all about temperament. It doesn't matter what oh, they yeah, look like. Oh, yeah, he's just, he's just, like, good friend. I think he'll keep, hopefully I'll keep my partner company while I travel around. <laughs> right, right. Well, because you, you are going on quite an extensive tour, aren't you? Yeah, pretty extensive. It's taking me all over the place. And, um, you know, in more and more dates, it seems like finally I'm one of those people who's, you know, booked February 2010 or something. <laughs> I'm like, how did this happen? So, um, but it's good. I'm, I'm really happy considering that there was a lot of um, skepticism about how this movie would turn out and who would want to watch it. Really? And where it would get played. Oh, God, so much. So That really happy. surprises me because... Yeah, I think it's, it's like I was giving this, you know, talk to a class of aspiring filmmakers the other day and the teacher said, oh, well, you know, Astra, everything you're saying is fine and good given that you know, your idea was such a, a solid one and so obviously, you know, executable and obviously had an audience and I was like, what are you talking about, you know? That's, Every step of the way, people thought I was insane. Oh, that's <laughs> very funny because my first question was going to be about how you, when you actually approached the eight philosophers that are featured in your film, I mean, how did you pitch it? What did you yeah. say to, I mean, talking to Judith Butler and Peter Singer saying, so I've got this film. Um, pitching to the philosophers, pitching Exam Life to the philosophers was actually the easiest part of the project. Really? I wrote perhaps a three-paragraph description. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I explained why the walking motif. I said walking is, resonates with the history of philosophy. Think back to Socrates wandering around Athens. Mm -hmm. Think about Nietzsche, who famously um, explored the mountains of you know the south of France or the Alps. Think about Walter Benjamin in Paris. There's a strong connection between philosophy and walking. And what I want to do is get philosophy out of the academy, get it out of the ivory tower, and show its connection to everyday right. life. So this pitch was obviously... Um, immediately graspable to my subjects, they sort of got what I was 
trying to convey what I was trying to do. And they're all people who are sympathetic to the sort of the broader project. They're all committed to the democratic nature of, of learning and knowledge. So this, they're already trying to inject the passion of ideas into the public sphere, whether by writing popular books or writing essays or op-eds or doing performance art or appearing in other films. So these, they, they were already sympathetic to the cause. Right. So how did you, I guess then the the trouble you ran into was with the film executives and the financers? Is that well, where? Um, the truth is that um, ex- the executive producer, Ron Mann, was immediately enthusiastic. And I think in some way, ways he, he believed in this film more than I did. He is a veteran filmmaker based in Toronto who directed Poetry in Motion mm-hmm. and um, Imagine the Sound and Grass. And so he's got, he, comic book confidential. So he's done these sort of anthology style films and they've um, done really well. So he was really optimistic. And the National Film Board, God bless them, signed uh-huh. on and were so enthusiastic. You know, they want to do unconventional feature-length documentaries aren't made for television. And uh, so they were they immediately got on board, and TV Ontario actually nice. bravely got on board and, and the Knowledge Network. So, uh, you know, in, in a sense, the funding was in place relatively painlessly once Ron came along. Okay. However, I did pitch it to a broader audience at Hot Docs in 2007, European film executives, precisely the people, you know, we always like to imagine Europe and, oh, yes, they must have these cerebral television programs every night. And, <laughs> well, you know, they're I mean, so enlightened. Um, and, I mean, I encountered just the most amazing opposition to the concept. Really? Just sweeping statements like nobody in, you know, the Netherlands would want to see this. Nobody in France wants to watch something like this. And that was, I encountered, even from, you know, rather erudite, educated, cosmopolitan friends of mine, this sort of, oh, no, how can you make a movie about philosophy? Or, oh, dear, you know, I don't know anything about that topic. I mean, people would really sort of shut down at, at the description and I realized that there's so much fear mm-hmm. I was I was just gonna say is that because people are so in so sort of intimidated by the idea of talking about philosophy and I mean the idea of ethics and philosophy does really overwhelm a lot of people nowadays and yeah why is, well, that? Why? Yeah. why is that I don't know I want to ask you I mean I think that's a, a it's sort of an important question what is it that makes this subject the subject that basically uh you know, investigate sort of fundamental, intractable questions at the heart of human existence. You know, what is justice? Mm-hmm. What is a good life? How are we to live? You know, and then some more sort of, you know, how can we know anything exists at all? And, right. You know, what is time? I mean, these are questions that kind of life doesn't get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is it so intimidating to people? And I, I think part of it's the school system, and part of it is the obsession we all have with you know, experts and, and sort of sanctioned, people being sanctioned to think, mm-hmm. sanctioned to talk about certain things. Um, so there's a sort of, people have a sense of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. But um, so in examining life, as much as it does focus on these illustrious thinkers, it also really invites the viewer, I think, to, you know, have a conversation with them. And it examine life poses a lot of questions. It doesn't give a lot of answers. And hopefully that builds an inquisitive momentum that then inspires the viewer to do some philosophizing of their own. Yes, definitely. And I think bringing the philosophers into the spaces that you do makes mm-hmm. them much more human. You're not seeing them set against a library background or in an office or in a, you know, high, high 
institute of education somewhere, then you're they're in taxi cabs, they're in parks, and they interact with people, and they interact with listeners as well. And I I wondered also how you paired each philosopher with each location mm-hmm. that they are featured in. Yeah, well, I, I knew when I was conceptualizing the film that I wanted the environments to serve as a second character, and I didn't want the environment simply to be passive. I mean, already I I know exactly what you're talking about. I could have interviewed them in their offices with mm-hmm. the books in the background. They and could have been talking sort of, heads. <laughs> exactly, and, and instead it's walking heads. So what I've got is them in these sort of banal, mundane everyday environments that we all move through, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're not at garbage dumps every day, but <laughs> well. we get sort of more banal than that. Um, and so I wanted to show different things about space. I mean, first of all, I wanted to show that philosophy, contrary to you know, sort of the common opinion, is not disconnected from the real world. It actually mm-hmm. emerges mm-hmm. in tandem with real, everyday, ordinary life. Um, and I wanted to show the way space is also active in sort of producing our thoughts. And you know, sparking ideas and sparking insight and connection. So I I wanted to show how the environment always shapes our thinking. Mm -hmm. We're always sort of in this strange dialogue with our environment. Environment. Um, And then also, you know, moving images must move. Like, that's why, why make a movie if you're just going to set everybody down and have a static camera? Absolutely. I mean, I wanted variation of scene. I wanted... um, I wanted accidents to happen so that we would have to respond to things and that the thoughts would be triggered that I couldn't have um, inspired if I was in a sort of regular studio or something. So I was really looking forward to obstacles to people coming up and talking to us, to all of these things that were – I wanted – us to be intruded upon by reality. So did that happen? Were there any, um, I mean, were there a lot of retakes or were there a lot of, were there moments that sort of life intervened and it was just the right thing and it was completely unexpected? Yeah, well, even there are moments in the film, you know, for example, when Sonora gets cold, when they're walking around San Francisco because the weather's pretty mercurial there. Mm -hmm. So we're walking around, everything's going good. It's been about an hour, an hour and a half. Suddenly the sky shifts, drops, you know, a few degrees, mm-hmm. and she says, I need a sweater. I'm freezing. Mm-hmm. And so then we're forced to go shopping. <laughs> so, you know, that was a – and then it actually becomes this metaphor for everything they've been talking about. Right. Or the moment when, um, you know, Michael Hart is talking about how we're conceptually stuck mm-hmm. when we speak about revolution, that he hits rock when he's rowing around the pond. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of sort of magical um, – moments that had a sort of synchronicity to them like that and then there was a lot of stuff that got cut i am doing a companion book that's coming out in july so Excellent. you'll see there are other things it'll what? also be called examine life yes only it disappears excursions with contemporary thinkers ah. <laughs> um so i've included some of the funnier moments like when avatar Rennell and i were doing the interview and these sort of gutter punks decided to throw their beer bottles at us no way to uh, <laughs> to leap off and all of this sort of stuff mm-hmm. so there were some funny moments that just couldn't be shoehorned into the film right yeah um, <laughs> it's it's an adventure in and of itself, and the way that it, the film is so captivating from the beginning and it pulls you through. I I'm in journalism school myself, and I started to wonder about the differences between the way we see news and information presented through the news, and the way that we look at ideas through documentary film. Because, but really, it it's, it strikes me that that there should be more dialogue of this sort in the news, but the idea of objectivity mm-hmm. and the idea of, of distance yeah. 
is so so much a part of how we believe we're supposed to understand the news, but in the end, people don't understand what's going on. This... Well, you know, the problem is that there's never objectivity in the news. I mean, mm. I, I sort of, I wish that commitment was actually re-inspired mm-hmm. um, in this day and age where we're seeing news organizations decimated and sort of investigative reporting funds getting depleted and, and you know, even sort of um, foundational news industries are, are reporting more and more on entertainment and, yeah. and staff is getting cut. So I sort of wish we could inspire, reinvigorate and re-inspire this old-fashioned idea of objectivity and the reporter who's just getting the truth and all this. Mm-hmm. But th- we're not living in that day and age, it seems. And so a lot of stuff is news is, you know, laden with ideology. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, I, there's philosophy all around us. It can go unsaid and unstated and unexamined. Mm-hmm. Or we can sort of call it out and talk about, you know, the way an issue is framed in the regular media or what ideas it's implicitly supporting. I mean, I think Cornel West in the film says, you got to, you know, examine our unarticulated presuppositions and preconceptions. I mean, that's the work of philosophy in a way, is to look at yourself and, well, what philosophy are you already carrying with you? Mm-hmm. Even if you may not call it such. So, um but yeah, there's no, there's very little space in the modern mediascape for you know, inquiry into ideas, mm-hmm. um, cultural trends on that sort of intellectual level, and it, it's sad. Yeah. All right. So Examined Life, which is directed by Astra Taylor, who I was just speaking to, is screening tomorrow at the Norm Theatre at the Student Union Building here at UBC. The screening starts at 4 o'clock, and the doors open at 3.30 p.m., and admission is free. So uh, head there early if you want to get a seat. Now, I am very excited to uh, welcome my last guest onto the program. She is a Juno nominee. Her second, her sophomore album, which is called The Contradictor, has been nominated for Best Roots and Traditional Solo Record at this year's Juno Awards. Her name is Ndidi Onokulu, and uh, she's joining me on the phone. I think you're in BC. Are you in, on, in BC today? I sure am. I'm <laughs> in Britannia Beach. Ooh. Ooh, how is that? It's a beautiful day to be it's outside. Very- very, very beautiful today. <laughs> it's one of those days that makes me just realize how much I love BC and how much I missed it when I was not living here. Well, exactly, because you spent quite a bit of time in New York and in Toronto. Yes, and yes I did. Do you still call Toronto your home base? No, I don't. I would have to say that I think, yeah, Britannia Beach, maybe Vancouver is, mm-hmm. is now becoming my home base for when I'm when I'm in Canada. I'm going to always be coming back here because you know what it's the best province absolutely country well well, welcome home (laughs) thank you (laughs) no problem and it's especially great that you've got this juno nod and the junos happen to be here in your hometown this year convenient (laughs) so where were you or what was the story behind you hearing that the contradictor had gotten the nod what where what were you doing when you got the information Um, let me see what was i doing well I sort of had an inkling. I knew I was in contention to get a nomination for the award because people, artists that they're really considering or that are somewhere in the top ten, they call their labels and ask for video clips okay. or some sort of promotional materials. Mm-hmm. And so my uh, label, head of my label, Jack Schuler, gives me a call and he said, okay, 
do you know people want to see if you have any sort of video footage of yourself? And I went, well, no, but mm -hmm. I'll send them a picture. He goes, okay. Doesn't mean you got nominated, but right. I'm just telling you. Playing it down, playing it down. For you. <laughs> and then on February 3rd, they announced the nominations, and I was nominated. And I, I can't really remember what happened. I think... Um, I got an email from somebody else mm -hmm. about it. <laughs> I don't think I even remembered. And then I, I got this email from probably one of my relatives going, congratulations, oh, and all these emails from, from people I know and love that apparently found out quicker than I could. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a well-deserved award. The, oh, the, the new album is fantastic. And you were nominated last year for the Maple Blues Awards and nominated you the new artist of the year. Yes. And you've just been, it seems like you've been touring and uh, just writing songs like a madwoman since your first album came out. Oh, yeah. Well, uh. you see, the thing about that is that before that first album came out, I was writing songs like a madwoman, but I was playing in an electronic group and then a rock group and then a sort of a hip-hop hybrid kind of strange mm -hmm. group. And then I was in New York writing hooks and singing backups for predominantly sort of hip-hop, more indie kind of artists. Right. And so I was doing all the stuff that was involving other people that I wasn't really working on my own stuff. So mm -hmm. I would sort of go home after a day of doing stuff for other people and sort of write Right. And then play and come up with all these ideas. So, you know, I have many, many songs. I mean, I probably have about 300 songs, mm -hmm. but they're old. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm constantly sort of writing all the time because, you know, once the floodgates sort of opened and I was able to make that record, mm -hmm. I, I really started working on, on this record, The Contradictor, and I, I sort of gained a lot of momentum and confidence. So now it's just a constant progress, constant writing, constant mm -hmm. creation, which is really exciting. <laughs> was there a moment that um, that everything changed, that that you sort of said that, you know what, I'm, I have to stop doing these things for other people, I have to stop singing other people's songs, and I need to start focusing and start doing my own thing, because it's what drives me? Well, you know what's really funny is that <laughs> there was no particular moment. I okay. was just happy to sing and kind of write with people and just I just wanted to start playing, you know. I'd been through so much and I just wanted to play and work and, and develop because, you know, a voice is constantly a woman's voice is constantly changing. I don't I think it stops but not until we're maybe thirty five or mm -hmm. forty or something like our, our vocal cords are changing, so in order to work the muscle you need to constantly be playing and and, and using it. And so I really was just I wasn't content, but I was sort of used to being in this place where I was working for other people. And a good friend of mine at the time was working for the Maple Blues Society, the mm -hmm. Toronto Blues Society. Sorry, the Toronto Blues Society. Yeah. And they had a contest mm -hmm. every year. They do still, I, I think, but I'm not sure. And the contest is for artists to submit three songs. Mm -hmm. And if they're selected, they'll get a chance to play. And if they win this competition, they get a record deal. And my friend harassed me. He literally <laughs> harassed me and called me and said, you have to do this. Like he'd randomly show up at my work and go, do you have your songs ready? <laughs> the, Sounds like a great friend. The contest closes in a week. Like, this was just really sort of ramming this down my throat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just sort of frustrated. I was like, fine, I'll just make some songs. So mm -hmm. I, I had two songs, and I recorded them mm -hmm. and submitted them. The funny thing is I gave the CD to my friend to submit, and she was late submitting, and no. I only had two songs, and he needed three, <laughs> so I didn't actually qualify. But the head of the Toronto Blue Society at the time, he, uh, Derek Andrews, he heard me on the CD. He heard mm -hmm. it because my friend was playing it, and he said, who is that? 
And my friend told him, oh, it's a friend of mine named Dee Dee. He goes, well, what's your number? I want to talk to her. And he called me up and said, I think you need to be doing some stuff. Do you have a band? I'd like mm -hmm. to hire you for this gig. And it was a, a big gig at the, the harbor front, which was really, really amazing. Nice. And uh, he said, you know, do you have a band? I went, no. He goes, well, I know some people. And that's just sort of how it started. So I reluctantly, I was very... You know, it's, it's really funny. Everybody goes through this, I feel. When you know that this is your path and you're going to have to activate it and start doing it, something happens to you. It's like a weird form of self-sabotage. And mm -hmm. I feel everybody does this no matter what they're doing. They have that moment where you're just really reluctant because you know the amount of work and the yeah. amount of struggle and the amount of um, self-support you're going to have to create when you really go on the path that you're meant to be on, and it can be a bit frightening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just sort of was trying to be as slow about the process <laughs> as possible and just sort of got pushed into it, and then things started happening. Well, uh, we're all thankful out here from a listening listener's perspective <laughs> that good, I'm glad. someone <laughs> kicked your butt into uh, motion because uh, it's certainly worthwhile. I, I, I only have two more minutes, so oh. I have to... To head on out here, but I'm going to close the show with um, SK Final, and I want to thank you and Didi so much, and give you so much good luck oh, this weekend you. at the Junos. You will be playing as part of Juno Fest this week. I will. I'll be playing at the Media Club on Saturday night at 9:30. But I'm also a part of the Songwriters Circle, which is happening at the Vancouver Center for the Performing Arts. And Huxley Workman is hosting, and Sarah Sleen will be there. Buffy St. Marie, Jim Cuddy, Greg Kegler. It's pretty big fantastic show so fantastic well everyone should get out there and make the most of it there's yeah. so many important artists and wonderful people out there playing some of our own hometown girls like Ndidi so uh, get out there thank you Ndidi so much for joining thank me thank you and uh, to everyone out there in Radioland I hope you have an excellent Wednesday evening it's beautiful out there this of course is Ndidi Onkulu and her wonderful song SK Final my name's Tracy Fuller this has been another arts report and please join me again next week for another wonderful edition enjoy
Simon the Cyrene's Harlem Dream by Kai Kello. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Mark 15, 21. When I get to heaven, I'm a ditty on in. When I get to heaven, I'm a bop on in. St. Peter best park my wings. When I push the pearly gates, they'd best wing wide. When I push the pearly gates, they'd best wing wide. And Paul, impeccable maitre d', best set, seat me by stage side. When I set to listen, band best hit hot. When I pat my foot, be that 